Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 363. It is a palindrome of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Monday, November 29th, 2021. I believe this will be our last podcast for the month of November, but you never know. Things sometimes move quickly around here. We will get, we have a, a few things to talk about. The main thing we have to do is preview the Ohio State Duke basketball game, which is coming up tomorrow night. That's Tuesday night. We also have to talk about the AP poll that just came out where, surprise, Duke is back to number one. And in unfortunate, I guess unfor- it, it's unfortunate news, uh, melancholy news for, for Duke fans, not specific to basketball, but uh, Duke and uh, former now football head coach David Cutcliffe have decided to part ways. So we'll spend a few minutes on that at the end. But before we get to all of that, of course, we have to introduce ourselves as we often do say hello. I am your host for this episode. I am Sam Klein. I am coming to you from uh, back home in Boston where I have returned post Thanksgiving holiday. Jason Evans and Donald Wine are also here. Jason, I will start with you. How are you, sir? Uh, doing pretty good. Blue Devils back where they belong at number one. I've got when we get to that part of the story, I got some interesting stats about how um, how remarkably common it is that Duke should be considered the best team in college basketball. And very interesting because Duke is is not even close to being number one in the in the efficiency ratings. But but the the results so far this year say that if you know if it's not Duke, that there aren't that many teams that have resumes that are clearly better than the blue devils again we'll talk about it donald wine is it looks like he's back home uh, from his travels so donald i am impressed that you survived so long in las vegas how are you doing i'm doing good i just landed uh back in dc literally about an hour and a half before we record so uh i am uh, it was a red eye home it was a very very long flight with another long flight but we back and as jason said order for now, has been restored. And, and I'll say, Donald, that looking at you, you don't look terrible. And, and given the <laughs> amount of time that you spent in Vegas, I feel like that's a win. That, it's think? always a win. See, I also sleep well on planes. When you fly as much as I do, you have to learn how to sleep on planes. I, I saw zero minutes. I saw maybe five minutes of the first flight and zero minutes of the second flight. The back of my eyelids is the greatest movie you will ever watch on a plane. And I watched it twice. Love it. Love it. All right. So as I said, we have to preview the Ohio State game. We have to spend a few minutes on the ACC Big Ten Challenge. We have lots of topics to get to. The first thing we're going to do is preview the game. And as we said the last time we previewed a game, when we got to uh, talk to an expert about Gonzaga basketball, this time we are doing the same thing again. So we had the opportunity to uh, chat with a gentleman from Land Grant Holy Land, which is the Ohio State SB Nation blog. You could say that there are our, our, our cousin over on, on the SB Nation network, Jason, was able to have a conversation yesterday with Connor Lamans. So uh, I won't bore you too much uh, about my knowledge about Ohio State basketball because it's not as good as Connor's is. So why don't we uh, listen to that interview right now? We are joined now by Connor Lamans. He's a writer at Land Grant Holy Land, which is the Ohio State site for SB Nation. He's also the host of the Ohio State um, basketball podcast that they have there called Bucketheads. Connor, thanks a lot for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. So, uh, so the idea behind this is we want you to give us a deep dive on the Ohio State basketball team ahead of uh, Duke's matchup with them in the next couple of days. 
Um, I, first thing I noticed, by the way, when looking at Ohio State is that you guys have done a pretty good job of beating the bad teams. You had a game against Akron that was only a one-point win. That was kind of nervous. But um, you beat the bad teams, and you got a nice one over Seton Hall. But Xavier and Florida fell to both those guys. Um, I mean, those are good clubs. But, but you know, summarize the season for me so far for Ohio State. Are you guys meeting expectations or not? Uh, it's It's been concerning. I think part of it is, is on injuries so far. You don't want to be banged up this early in the season, but um... – their second best player, I would say, Justice Suing, he is out for in, indefinitely. Uh, it sounds like it could be January, it could be February. Can't rule out the whole season. Um, Justice Suing is he is out. He is a very crucial piece for them, especially on defense. And then Eugene Brown is also out potentially for the Duke game. He missed that whole Fort, Fort Myers tip off. Um, and then Seth Towns is also out with having back surgery until December. So they're already very banged up. Um, they've struggled. Even, you know, Akron, Niagara, they struggled against inferior opponents. They played up to, you know, to Xavier, Seton Hall, Florida. Um, I think this is a good basketball team. I think this is a tournament team. But I think the expectations for this team have kind of shifted from a Big Ten title contender when it started out to, I don't know, somewhere between like a seven and a ten seed in the tournament. I still think they're a tournament team, though. I think they're a good team that nobody should take for granted. Right. And, and of course, the game is at Ohio State. And anytime you're playing at home, you know, you get a big advantage there. Hey, I want to talk to you about your best player. Um, six, seven power forward, EJ Liddell. I, I checked the Ken Palm player of the year standings. He's the leader. Ken Palm considers him the best player in the nation right now, ahead of Drew Timmy and Keegan Murray of Iowa. 22 and a half points per game. I mean, dude's blocking almost four shots per game. He's even hitting his threes. You know, he doesn't take a lot of them, but he's hitting 40 percent of his threes. Talk to me about what kind of a, a, a you know, a surprise this season's because he was good, but he wasn't this good in the past. Yeah, he was, uh, he was very good as a freshman. He came off the bench as a freshman. He was very good last season as well. But um, if you watched very much Ohio State basketball, you know who Dwayne Washington Jr. was. Um, he was their leading scorer last season, and EJ Liddell was kind of Robin to Batman. But they were both very good last year. Um, Dwayne plays for the Indiana Pacers now, kind of bouncing between – their G league team and the Pacers. So EJ now is able to step forward and kind of be like the go-to guy now. And you're right about the threes. He's expanded his game. That's part of the thing that when he did the NBA draft process, they talked about was, you know, when you're only six, eight, that kind of thing, you're not going to be big enough to bang down low with NBA centers he needs to expand his range a little bit. Um, and he's been there. Him and Justin Arns are the best three point shooters in the team. And that's huge for him because he's, he's a big thick guy. He's every bit of, you know, six, seven, two thirty, two forty. He'll bring your center out to the elbow, to the to the uh, kind of the free throw line area, and even bring it out to the three point line. So he's extending teams and making their bigger guys, you know, move outside. Uh, and now, is he? I got the impression he was mostly playing like power forward. So so we would see him matched up against six ten, two fifty, Paulo Bancaro, you know, player of the year contender. Are they playing him a little bit at center now um, to try and draw big men away? They're they're playing him more at center than they had hoped just because of some of the guys that they've lost already missing some of the personnel. They were hoping to play EJ specifically at the four this season, not have to play him at the five. But when you're missing a couple guys who have some height, he has gone down to center. He's moved to the center spot a few times, but they're, they would like to play him at the power forward spot, have Kyle Young and Zed Key um, and some Joey Brunk at the five. But yes, I think that Paolo Bencaro is going to be the matchup with Liddell. Now, now you, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Key and Young, you know, sort of the, the I guess, the, the backup centers 
um, or, or, or starting centers for that matter. <laughs> um, those guys are, are each six, eight, um, EJ is six, seven, six, eight. Y'all don't really have anybody much. Uh, you got Joey Brunk, who's a little bit bigger than that, but doesn't play a ton, I guess. Um, uh, Duke's a big team. Uh, is that a, is that a concern for you in this matchup? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think this is one of the worst possible matchups for Ohio state to get in the ACC challenge. Um, they struggled with Xavier because of their length and Duke is a taller team than Xavier. Um, they didn't struggle as much with Florida. Um, as, as I thought Colin Castleton's a big guy, um, but they didn't struggle as much with Florida as I thought they would, but they really struggle with Xavier with some of their length. And on our last podcast episode, myself and Justin Golba were talking about that. And I think this is one of the worst possible matchups for Ohio state, because if, if Liddell is on Bancaro, then you say, okay, so who caught, who, uh, Geez, who's Duke Center? Is it Mark Williams is his name, right? Who's Mark, Mark, Williams, Mark Williams, yeah, who, who just had a great game against Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren. <laughs> exactly. So who's going to – if you put Liddell, who's basically your biggest guy, on on Ben Carroll, who's going to be on Williams? And then Keels is going to be a problem too because not as how tall he is, but man, he's just a big linebacker. He is a big guy, and I don't know if Ohio State has a guard who's strong enough to guard him. So I think there's going to be some mismatches all over the place. Well, yeah, you, you, you've clearly scattered the Duke team, um, and we appreciate that. <laughs> um, hey, tell me what Ohio State's trying to do on offense. What, what's working and what isn't? Last season, so yeah, so last season they were like a top five offense in Ken Palm, and defense is absolutely atrocious. And this year it's kind of come back to level. Um, defense has been better. Offense hasn't been quite as efficient. The, the, really, the, the go-to is going to be, get the ball to EJ Liddell as much as possible because he's going to have a mismatch somewhere. If he's going to bring somebody out, you know, this is going to be the first game I think where they're going to be tested that just getting the ball to EJ Liddell to make something happen. It might not work. Somebody else is going to have to step up and that's where missing justice suing is such a big thing in this game. Um, I think you're going to have to see somebody like Zed key really step up in this game down low. If EJ Liddell is having trouble with Ben um, but I guess to answer your question in short, it's been get EJ Liddell the ball and make something happen. And he's shooting almost 60% from the floor this season. And it's worked more times than not, but that's not really a sustainable strategy. Uh, so uh, I know your team's really experienced. You got a lot of juniors and seniors who are playing for you, but you've got at least a couple freshmen who are making significant contributions. Uh, talk to me about uh, Johnson and Branham. Yeah, so Michi Johnson is, he's a really exciting player. He actually played last season as he should have been a high school senior last season. He enrolled and got to Ohio State in January and got some minutes in the, in, in the second half of the season because Ohio State had some injuries at guard and they needed him to come in. So he's a really exciting player. He shows flashes of being really explosive. He can finish with the right. He can finish with the left. Um, if you watch the Seton Hall game, he had a game-winning three-pointer against Seton Hall. That's how they won that game. And Branham is he had a few really good games against Bowling Green, against Akron, against Niagara. But when the competition got tougher, um, he got in some early foul trouble. You have some experienced guards who are really taking advantage of him, um, especially driving to the basket on shot fake. So there are a couple of really good guards um, that are going to get better. They got to get through some growing pains, though. Um, and you said this team is pretty old. If you look at the roster, that's true. However, Michi Johnson and Malachi Branham are getting more minutes than some of those older guards right now. Um, so this is going to, this is a fun, but frustrating team because those younger guards are getting a lot of the minutes we thought the older guys were going to get. 
Hey, really quick, I want to touch on the defense. You said it's better than last year. What, what are they trying to do? Are they playing zone? Are they trapping? Is it man-to-man? You know, school me a little bit on, on Ohio State's D. They've done mostly man-to-man, but they've switched to zone when they've struggled. Um, they have a couple guys who are really good on-ball defenders in Jamari Wheeler and Eugene Brown, which Eugene Brown, he may miss this game again with concussion. Eugene Brown comes off the bench. Jamari Wheeler um, transferred from Penn State last year. Those are two guys that, you kind of want to assign to specific guys to lock them down. This game might be difficult. I don't think Jamari Wheeler is going to be a great matchup for Trevor Keels. So I don't know if they will actually go with man-to-man as much this game because of the matchups, but for most of the season, yeah, they've been doing mostly man-to-man when they've struggled, they switched over to a zone. Um, Defense has been looking a lot better this season than it was last year. Uh, Hey, I promise not to take too much of your time. So, so we're going to wrap it up here. You already mentioned you're worried about Duke's size and length. You're worried about the physicality of guys like Trevor Keels. Uh, what, what's your prediction for this game? I mean, it's it's at Ohio State. I mean, that gives you guys a real advantage. If it was in a neutral site, I think I can probably guess. But what what, what do you think is going to happen in this contest? Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think if it was a neutral site, I would take Duke clear and easy by a pretty good margin in this one. Um the shot where Ohio State plays, it's not a great home environment. It's it's way too big to sell out most most nights, but this game is going to be a sellout. There will be close to 19,000 people in there, and I think that will be – that will give Ohio State a little bit of an advantage. But um, when you get down to it, the talent gap and the mismatches is going to be tough. So I would probably take Duke by, I don't know, somewhere between probably 8 and 10 points, not a blowout because it's at home. But I think it's going to be too much for them to overcome. Wow. I, I love the brutal honesty there from an Ohio State podcaster. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Connor Lamonds. We appreciate it. Um, folks, if you're interested in Ohio State basketball, uh, reach out and find Connor because um, these guys clearly know what they're talking about. Um, he's with Land Grant Holy Land and the podcast Bucketheads. Connor, again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. So thanks again to Connor Lamonds for coming on and, and chatting Ohio State basketball with us. I know it's uh, Donald. Donald knows that in particular that it is a tough time at this moment to be an Ohio State fan. So uh, so I, I can see him. I can see him grinning about about the Michigan game from uh, from Saturday. But we're not we're not doing football. We're doing basketball here. The Ohio State fans have to move on, even though I know they won't. So Jason, I'll, I'll come to you first. Uh, reactions to the conversation with Connor about about Ohio State and and how much he is. It sounds like he's worried about this matchup with Duke on Tuesday. Yeah, and I thought so. First of all, I, you know you got to praise the guy for for being brutally honest. Um, Ohio State uh, was forecasted. I mean, look, the reason they're playing Duke is everyone expected them to be one of the top couple teams in the Big Ten. They were forecasted nationally to be about a top 15 kind of program, not far from where Duke was forecast by the, the, the experts in the preseason. And, and yet Ohio State's season has been, you know, I don't want to call it slumping, but, but they've been going down in the rankings while Duke's been going up in the rankings. And as a result, you have a game that even though it's at Ohio State, I think most people think Duke, I, I, you know, maybe Ohio State's a tiny, tiny favorite because it's at home. But uh, this this is expected to be. Uh, you heard from the Ohio State folks that they, they don't think they're going to win this game, and and I, I was you know I was struck by how much he acknowledged you know, injuries have really affected this team. They're they're perhaps relying on EJ Liddell too much. They're asking him to do everything for them, um, and he's a he's a fabulous player. 
Uh, you know, the top, as I mentioned, the number one player in Ken Palm's player of the year rankings, which is not easy to do. That's, you know, that's, that's a lot of stats. That's a lot of efficiency and stuff like that, but he can't do it by himself. And then the thing that you really heard, I think was a resignation that they don't have the size. They just don't have the size. It, it, you know, we just saw Duke take on the best pair of big men in the country and, and probably beat them in, you know, in terms of the matchup up front um, for Duke then to turn around and be taking on an Ohio state team that that's playing, you know, six, seven and six, eight guys in the front line, including some of them, you know, who are not that bulky and beefy. Uh, that's just going to be a huge problem for Ohio state. I don't know how they handle Mark Williams. I don't know how they handle Paulo Bancaro. I think that, I think I can say that for just about every team on Duke's schedule. But for Ohio State especially, I think it could be a real problem for them. Donald, what's your read on this game? Do you do you feel as confident as as Jason and I guess as as Connor do that that Duke is in is in good position here to to beat Ohio State, even though this game is on the road, presumably in a hostile environment? Yeah, well, first of all, tomorrow's my birthday, so we can't lose at Ohio State on my birthday. That's just the facts. It's it's written in the script. I already read it. So you know, tell tell everybody that this is going to happen. We got to beat Ohio state on the road, but I, I will say, Jason, the great thing that you talked about with him was that inside, you know, battle that could happen tomorrow because I've seen a couple of games of Ohio state. I saw the Seton hall game and I saw the uh, Xavier game and both times their struggles came on the inside. And it wasn't necessarily that EJ Liddell or anybody was, was being bad. It was that they are not efficient on the inside. They were just going after shots. They were being very lazy when it comes to their offensive set. And then they would try to go up for a layup or something like that. And really just kind of go at it kind of lazy. And because of that, you know, Xavier or Seton hall was able to get it and run it the other way. Now they were able to get it together against Seton hall, but when it comes to the inside, they're going to have a lot of times where it kind of, if you remember a couple years ago, the old Miami teams where they were just kind of throw balls at the basket and hope they would get offensive rebounds and hope that you got tired and they try to do three or four, you know, throwing at the baskets in one possession and try and get it in on the fifth one. This is what Ohio state did against Seton hall. Seton hall was not able to catch up to that at, at a certain point. They did tire out, but against Xavier, Xavier was kind of like, I mean, what are you going to do? Like you just, if you're just going to throw the ball at the basket every single time, we're eventually going to take it and run the other way. And that's what they did. So I think when it comes to Paula Bancaro, when it comes to Mark Williams and even Theo John, they have a size advantage and they have an efficiency advantage. And I think they need to use that against Ohio State. Another thing that sort of ties into that, that I, I wanted to bring up because a, a listener, a friend of mine emailed me earlier and pointed out that one thing we didn't talk about post Gonzaga game is how well Duke did at, at stopping Gonzaga's transition offense where Gonzaga, especially against UCLA, was able to leak out and get a lot of buckets. Um, Ohio State's just not going to be able to get away with that sort of thing against Duke. Duke is, 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 too, is too big and, and too skilled in, you know, with those big men to let, um, to let Ohio State guys sort of get around them like that. And, and I'm, I'm conscious of the, the challenge that EJ Liddell poses to anybody who he's playing against because he has been so effective and so efficient this season, but Duke can throw so many bodies at him. Like the, the number of fouls that Duke can give to EJ Liddell, even if he gets to the line a bunch, 
Mark Williams can foul him a couple times. Trevor Keels can foul him a couple times. Wendell Moore can foul him a couple times. And there's still sort of, you know, space left over for that sort of thing. So even if Duke is letting him and letting Liddell get his, uh, I agree that the, the sort of prognostication goes this way. Um, and, and sort of coming back to something that Jason was talking about, about the ACC Big Ten Challenge, I think that the, the organizers would have, would have reshuffled the, uh, the the matchups we can talk about this for a few Duke minutes, and Purdue but they would have made it Duke and Purdue the, uh, all day <laughs> yeah th- this I mean, it, I mean and what a week it would have been to have the Duke Purdue game with with Duke and Purdue Absolutely. being like the, the two teams with the best resumes so far there are a couple of these games where where one team has kind of gone up and one has kind of kind of come down since the beginning of the season right Jason Oh yeah, for sure. And look, I, I don't know. Are we transitioning now from <laughs> from Ohio sure. State to the entire I, challenge? Look, I, I think the benefit of having of having Connor on is that we don't have to spend too much time on on this game specifically, right? Yeah. Well, there's one thing I do want to point out for us on offense that I think is going to be important. We we got a couple of emails from uh, a, an avid listener, Regina Lee, who actually was talking about it first, not making the game, but she was able to make it to the Gonzaga game. So Regina, hi, I'm glad you made it to Las Vegas for that epic battle. But she asked about the X's and O's uh, of some of the plays that Duke runs. And and luckily, I think there was a play that we do quite a bit that I think you may see a lot against Ohio State. And if you realize, you know, we'll have guys come up, either Paul Bancaro, Wendell Moore, Trevor Keels, even Jeremy Roach. They start at the top of the key, and there's usually four guys across the lane, and we kind of do that weave where we you know, dribble to the corner, hand it off to a guy who tries to come around, and eventually the idea is one of them is going to drive straight to the basket and try to get a layup. The problem is sometimes when Jeremy Roach does that or even when Trevor Keels did that against Gonzaga, we had a couple of guys that did not shuffle down with them. And what I mean is those guys that are on the wings that hand the ball off, they either need to slash to the basket or they need to go to the corner. And if they go to the corner, there were times that we were able to get great threes. Wendell Moore was great at this against Gonzaga, where he was open because as the defense collapses on the person with the ball in the paint, the obvious lane that's going to be open for a passing window are the two corners. There's also a guy on the wing that can also slash to the basket, which you saw a couple of times with Mark Williams. He would hand the ball off. Wendell Moore would kind of drive around, and he would just drop it off to, window, to Mark Williams, who would tomahawk dunk it over somebody. Namely, Chet Holmgren, that one play where he just absolutely yammed it on him. It's because of this play. So look for that against Ohio State. But the idea is going to be this. If we're going to be able to win, we're going to need to be consistent from three-point land. We don't have to have a great percentage, obviously. But it'd be great to have one. But the way to do it is to have open shots. The way to have open shots is to make sure that whoever catches that ball, they need to look for the wings first then look for the slasher that's coming in right behind him because those are going to be the three open passing lanes for Duke in this. And when, I, when we talk about this in, interior battle, they're going to try and focus on that Ohio State will. They're going to try and focus on stopping Paul Bancaro and Mark Williams and even Theo John. That's going to leave our wings and our guards open. Joey Baker, when he comes to the game, if he parks in the corner, he should have several open chances or at least open looks to get three-pointers. And if he can make a few of those, Ohio State's in big trouble. So let's then talk about the the rest of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Uh, now that we've now that we've previewed Ohio State a little bit, uh, Jason, I'll I'll let you kick this one off. What do you think about the the rest of the challenge? Any games that are of note to you that you're going to be paying attention to? And maybe we have to start with Purdue, but but uh, go anywhere that you think is interesting here. So 
unless you've been hiding under a rock, you're probably aware that uh, Duke, uh, sorry, that the ACC has had a really, really rough um, pre-conference season. Uh, we're just losing games left and right. And it, the conference is not very good in any of the advanced metrics. Um, and, and as we know, in recent years, the NCAA selection committee is using those advanced metrics more and more. And as a result, you, you're, you, you know, you got to start to wonder how many, how many NCAA bids the ACC is going to get. Uh, so what I'm really looking for is those teams that look like, other than Duke, the teams that look like they are sort of at the top of the a ACC, how those teams do against fairly good, important Big Ten competition. So like Virginia Tech is playing Maryland. Um, it, it, it's at Maryland, which is unfortunate because I think if it was at Virginia Tech, I'd, I'd feel really good about the Hokies winning. But, but that's a huge game for them. You pick up a win there against a good but not great Maryland team, a Maryland team that has struggled a little more this year maybe than some people thought. That, that's a big feather in your cap if you're Virginia Tech. Florida State, Purdue. It's at Purdue. I don't. I, I, that's too high a mountain probably for Florida State to climb. But boy, if they did, it'd be huge for the ACC. Uh, you know, Louisville's got Michigan State. Notre Dame's got Illinois. Uh, again, all these games are on the road. One of the things that happened, unfortunately, for the ACC this year is somehow all of our good teams are playing on the road and all of our bad teams are playing at home. I, I, but that could be real. It could really skew the challenge because our bad teams are really bad. And, and I think that the uh, most of the teams in the um, in the Big Ten are are better, especially at the bottom, than the ACC is. So uh, you could see uh, it's entirely possible the ACC wins two, three, maybe four games in the challenge. It could be really, really brutal. But uh, again, I'm focusing on those games among the teams at the very, very top: Virginia Tech, Florida State, Louisville, Notre Dame. Virginia, Clemson, North Carolina, um, almost every one of whom are playing on the road other than North Carolina. They've got Michigan at home, but God, Michigan, I, any one of those teams that gets a win, that's an important step for those teams in solidifying a resume for the NCAA tournament. And frankly, the ACC needs some wins so that when we play conference games, it doesn't look bad. Um, if you pick up a loss, you know, if you go 15 and five in the ACC, I want that to be impressive not look like you lost five games to teams that suck. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to put numbers around that, Jason, the ACC has, it looks like eight teams who are ranked better than 50th in Ken Palm as of today. One of them is favored in their game uh, in the ACC big 10 challenge. Uh, and that's Clemson again, who's playing Rutgers on, on Tuesday. Otherwise uh, in, in fact, even the Ohio state game for Duke, uh, Ken Palm basically has it as a toss up, but an Ohio state, uh, victory because he has to pick something. Um, his numbers say that that it's basically a toss up between Duke and Ohio State, probably because you know the, the game is on the road, and I, I think that 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 sort of gives favor to whoever the the home team is. At, but my, I was gonna say my my bet is when the odds makers, when Vegas, when the money starts coming in, Duke will be favored against Ohio State. A because sure. people like to bet on Duke, but B because I think from an eye test standpoint, people are like, wait a second, this just doesn't make sense. But it's worth noting, um, there are a bunch of like toss-up games, according to Ken Palm, in, in these, the, the Duke-Ohio State game you mentioned is a toss-up. Virginia Tech, Maryland, 50-50, that's a toss-up. Uh, Pomeroy has the, the Clemson-Rutgers game as a toss-up. He's got Virginia-Iowa right. yeah, yeah, as a toss-up. Even, even as favored 
uh, Clemson's not even overwhelmingly favored against against Rutgers. Right, right. But but there are all these toss ups, and and the ACC needs to come down on the right side of those coin tosses more often than not. Otherwise, this could be a brutally bad challenge. Uh, the only and- ACC teams that are sort of favored in a big way. Uh, NC State has Nebraska. Nebraska is really not very good, and they're favored by a lot. And I, actually, I think that's probably like the only one where you go, "Oh, the ACC's," you know, it looks like the ACC's almost certainly going to win. Yeah, it's it's not a good it's not a good look. The rest of the the games. Having said that, from a neutral standpoint, there will be some really good games in this, it, it just competitive games, because as you said, there are some teams, some good teams that are on the road against some some decent teams. Uh, I think one that's intriguing um, that a lot of people probably won't talk about, but we should probably watch it because I think it will be intriguing is Wisconsin, Georgia tech. Uh, both of them have started out fairly well. I think they're both are five and one Wisconsin's ranked Georgia tech obviously is coming off of that ACC uh, tournament championship that they had last year to basically stream into the dance. And they've used that to their advantage. But also, as you remember last year, Georgia tech was impossible to beat at home. So I think that's going to be a very intriguing matchup where a lot of people probably have Wisconsin favored in that matchup, but don't sleep on, on Georgia Tech in that in that game because I think them playing at the pavilion is going to be uh, something that they can you know use that to their advantage. So I'm looking forward to this because I think there's a lot of competitive games. For us, though, I think the ACC, as you said, Jason and, and Sam, that I think we're on an uphill battle because I think from an ACC standpoint, some of these matchups really were probably based off of last year's success or not success. And they didn't focus on what the teams were going to be like this year. I know that's hard to do with the transfer portal and the draft and everything, but uh, it we're looking at a few games where I'm like, mm, the odds makers may think it's close, but I don't think it's going to be as close as it will be. But there are some that will be good. I'm generally a believer in Florida State. I just think that Leonard Hamilton does a good job with his program. And, and yeah, they're not, they're not favored to beat Purdue. Purdue is, has been one of the strongest, if not the strongest teams so far this season. And we'll talk, we'll talk about the AP poll in a minute, but, um, but that that's definitely one to watch on Tuesday is sort of the, the undercard to the Duke Ohio state game is that Florida state Purdue game. Um, I'm going to try to try to tune into that one because, because Leonard Hamilton usually has his teams sort of in good shape early in the season. And by the way, this is one of the last opportunities that ACC teams will have to prove themselves before conference play starts. And that's where, you know, the, the number of bids that the conference gets really get figured out now at this time of year. So it, it's definitely a big week for the ACC to, um, to try to dig out of a little bit of the hole that they've been in here. Yeah, Sam. And when it comes to these challenges, I mean, you have that, you have the SEC, I think plays the big 12 or the PAC 12, all these challenges are, are meant so that at the end of the year, the committee can go, oh, well, this conference is better than that conference. Right now, a lot of people do not like the ACC. I mean, like the early, early projections right now, of course, they don't really matter. But four teams are in uh, Joe Lenardi's bracketology for right now. So we're trying to get seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 teams in. Starting out with four is a very, very bad prognosis to do that. So this is where the ACC needs to say, hey, look, this team, this conference that you think is the best conference in America, we can hang with them. And if we can hang with them, then that sets everything up for in-conference games where you go, oh, well, Syracuse beat this team and Georgia Tech beat this team. Those are all good wins. That's what the ACC is looking for in this. Hey, Sam. Sam, you want to transition to our next topic? The AP poll? 
Guess how many AP, ACC teams are ranked this week? One. Is it just one? It's just one. And, and it's so, not even like the ACC has teams like really knocking right on the door. I mean, like North Carolina is like one, two, three, four, like eighth or ninth in, you know, also receiving votes. Virginia Tech and Wake Forest and Louisville are also receiving votes at the very bottom, you know, like two, three points. The ACC is, is other than Duke at the very top, the ACC is absent from the AP top 25. There's your transition to our next topic, man. I was going to say, I need to take a break for us to talk about the, <laughs> about the poll. So you've given me the preview for it. Folks, we're going to take the break. We'll be right back. We'll talk about the fact that Duke is now back to number one. So as you know by now, Duke is is number one in the AP poll, and Jason uh, gave us a bit of the uh, a bit of the background on how poorly the rest of the conference is doing. But he also gave us the preview on some numbers that he's going to be sharing about Duke being number one in the AP poll. So, Jason, take it away, sir. Yeah. So here are the numbers for you: one hundred and forty-five. That's the first number. It's the hundred and forty-five, forty-five, hundred and forty-fifth time <laughs> that Duke has been ranked number one. That, my friends, is an all-time college basketball record. Um, uh, Duke, by the way, got 51 of the 61 first place votes this week. Um, uh, Purdue um, uh, was the team that got nine first place votes and Gonzaga still got another number one vote. I, I, I really wanna meet the guy. I wanna understand the person who watched Duke play Gonzaga and still I voted Gonzaga number one. I, I, I argued that I was talking texting with my brother. I argued that he was the lone person in America who was like, yo, 1030 on a Friday on Black Friday. I am going to sleep. You tell me who wins. And then he woke up and saw as close. He goes, eh, well, still vote Gonzaga. I, I, I think it's even worse than that. This voter clearly submitted their ballot on Thursday. No, <laughs> maybe, maybe Friday more. He's like, like hey, I, I don't work. I don't work holidays here. Here's my ballot. Uh, so as I continue the countdown of the numbers surrounding Duke being number one, this is now uh, Mike Krzyzewski's 21st different season where he has had a team ranked number one. Can we marinate on that for a moment? That's a crazy number. There are schools out there that have never, I mean, really good basketball programs that have never gotten to number one in their entire lifetimes. There are really good basketball programs that like, Hey, we did it like three times in the past decade. Wow. We're, you know, Jason Purdue has never been number one. Yes. <laughs> yes. Really good basketball program. Never been number one. Mike Krzyzewski's done it in 21 different season. Coach K has been number one, 127 weeks of his career. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And, and guys, I don't know if Purdue fans have ever rooted for Ohio state as hard as they're going to root for <laughs> Ohio state against Duke tomorrow night. Right, right. <laughs> because this is, because by the way, this is also Duke's, you know, ad, administer whatever uh, superstitious uh, insert you need here, but this is Duke's last really tough non-conference game. Um, yeah. Cause yeah. Duke's non-conference mm -hmm. schedule this year was basically Kentucky, Ohio state, Gonzaga, and then a whole bunch of dreck. So, so this is the last shot that Duke has to lose in the non-conference. Um, so Purdue is, is very much rooting for, for Ohio State tomorrow night. And, and, and the last number I wanted to mention, like I said, Coach K has been ranked number one in 21 different seasons. To put that in perspective, the guys who are second, you know, that's obviously the most of all time, are John Wooden and Roy Williams. 
they, they've each been ranked number one in 12 seasons. They're both, of course, retired now. You know, John Wooden, obviously, you know, <laughs> Roy Williams just retired, but they, they, they are, they're each at 12 seasons being ranked number one. Coach K is at 21. He's almost doubled the second and third place guys. Combine them together and you almost reach Coach K. So it's just, it's a remarkable, remarkable record of achievement. And, and it's just cool that Duke in his final season was able to give him yet another number one rated team. I will say when it comes to the poll, and, and of course, this is an early poll. So while we are excited, we also used to measure it and kind of saying, hey, we're still in December. We want to be number one in April, obviously. But Jason, when we were talking about the ACC Big Ten Challenge and how the nation views the Big Ten versus how they view the ACC, I mean, take a look at some of these rankings because I've seen some of these teams. And some of these teams have not played well at all this year in the Big Ten, but they're still ranked. Whereas, uh, you know, a, a loss, you know, for some of these uh, uh, some of these teams in the ACC, one loss was enough to bounce them from the rankings. And it's because the Big Ten has the stature of, hey, no matter what, our teams are really good. Yeah, we may slip up in, in the regular in the early season, but it's because we're playing decent teams. Some of these teams that they've lost to are not decent. They may be power five teams, but they're not that good. Uh, Michigan, for example, lost to Seton Hall at home and then got blown, got the doors blown off of them by Arizona. And Arizona is decent, but they're not a top 25 team by any stretch. And neither is Seton. I mean, Seton Hall like, is probably ranked because of their non-conference schedule and the fact they've plucked a couple of wins. But th- these teams should not be losing. Or they should not be beating the likes of Michigan or Michigan State or Wisconsin. So this is where the ACC really needs to say, hey, look, if you're saying that all these teams who have lost a couple during the regular season so far are still high and mighty, we need to start plucking off some wins bad. And some of these teams, especially when we talk about towards the end of the season, they don't have a lot of opportunities left, as you mentioned, to get some of these big-time wins. So this week is going to be a big week for the ACC. Well, uh, Donald, the only counter I would have to that is um, Seton Hall and, and Arizona and some of these other teams that you say, oh, they, they, they beat Big Ten teams. The, the Big Ten also has some, some pretty good non-conference victories. Aside from Duke, the ACC's got like nothing in terms of non-conference victories. They're, they're, That's fair too. I mean, the ACC's record against like top forty teams in in Ken Palm, uh, other than Duke, I th- I think there's like maybe one or two wins, not m- not more than that. Uh, our 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 record against good teams is dismal, which is why we have to pick up some wins this week, or or like you said, you know, Joe Lenardi, he may be right, and the ACC may be looking at at four bids or something terrible like that which would just be, it'd be atrocious. And if you thought that in a normal year, uh, ACC opponents that Duke faces on the road get excited for Duke to come into town so that they can, they can take them down. Uh, this year, it's Coach K's last year, and Duke is one of the only good teams in the conference. So teams are going to be desperate for victories uh, against good teams, and, and, and Duke is going to be one of the only ones available to them. So it just shows you, like, if you didn't think Duke had the target on their back, so to say, going into conference play. It just emphasizes it here. I was actually just going to add that that I'm surprised that Duke was so overwhelmingly getting the first place votes this week. I know that it, it was about toppling Gonzaga, but I, I was actually thinking that, that Duke and Purdue would probably be closer in first place votes. In in the total votes, they were they were still fairly close to each other, but um, 
I guess the the voters really really took that that game um, took that game seriously, and I guess the the narrative coming out of it would be that um, would be that Duke won despite having you know minutes taken away from Paulo Bancaro because of what I still hope is just freak cramping stuff. Whereas Duke's playing style was able to frustrate Gun like Gonzaga had guys sitting out of the game. Drew Timmy and and Chet Holmgren both. Uh, ran into foul trouble in this game that that forced them to sit Holmgren in particular, but that that was Duke's playing style that did that. Not that it was like a fluke of the game. Lightning fast to be the King. You got to beat the King. That's why Duke's number one in Purdue's not. And then the other thing really quick, cause you mentioned the, the cramping Paulo tweeted something like in the past 24 hours where he was like, yo, we're, we're dealing with this. Yeah. It ain't going to happen anymore. You're going <laughs> to see I the real, that. He's like, you're going to see the real Paulo very soon. It, it's clear to me that something's been going on with him and, and they're, they're figuring it out, which is scary, and, by the way, <laughs> in a good way. And on the one versus two thing, I think the other thing that factors into it is that we beat Kentucky as well. So we have two top 10 team or victories as opposed to Purdue only beating, I say only beating Villanova. That's a really big win, but they only have one top 10 win so far. So right now, again, very, very early in the season, but I think those are the, the minor it, minor differences that people are parsing through to try and figure out who's number one and who's number two. Yeah, Purdue's other big win is a victory over North Carolina, and that's not a very good win. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't, we don't accept those. So that's it on the rankings, guys. One final topic. It is a, as I said at the top, it's a bit of a melancholy one. We're not going to be talking about basketball anymore. We are going to back go back and talk about Duke football for a few minutes. We have not really spent much time on the football program in the last few weeks as the losses have continued to pile up in in fairly embarrassing fashion for the Blue Devils. But uh, I would like us to spend a few minutes talking about Coach David Cutcliffe. The athletic department uh, announced yesterday that on Sunday that they and Coach Cutcliffe has agree- have agreed on a separation agreement. They didn't call it a firing. Um, they didn't call it a retirement. They called it a separation, uh, which I guess is just mutual. We don't want to fire you. The The athletic department, I think, is, is appropriately grateful for all of David Cutcliffe's accomplishments in Durham, but given the performance of the last few years, sort of feels like it's time to move on. And, and before I, I come to each of you for reflections about Coach Cutcliffe and, and where you kind of think the program is going from here. I just wanted to read from the press release because I, I do think it's worth highlighting some of the success here. So Cutcliffe, uh, I'm just reading from the goduke.com press release. Uh, Cutcliffe was named Duke's head coach on December 15th, 2007. My editorial here, or not editorial, but just to add, this is before Kevin White was was the athletic director. This was Joe Oliva's like last hire uh, before he, he left Duke for LSU. So December, 2007, took over a Blue Devil program that had won just eight games the previous five years. The two-time ACC Coach of the Year and 2013 National Coach of the Year, Cutcliffe led Duke to 77 victories in 14 seasons with six bowl game appearances, three bowl victories, and the 2013 ACC Coastal Division Championship. The Cutcliffe era included the program's first bowl victory since 1961, a pair of NFL first-round draft picks in Lakin Tomlinson and Daniel Jones, an eight-game winning streak in 2013, which was Duke's longest since 1941, and a final national ranking in 2013, 22nd and 23rd, respectively, by the two polls. 
to mark Duke's first showing in a final poll since 1962. So lots of first time for Duke since before anybody who runs this podcast was born stats there uh, to sum up the Cutcliffe era. I love it when we have stuff that's older than me. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and, and, and unfortunately in, in Duke football terms, it's uh, it's not uncommon, uh, especially in the Cutcliffe era. So Donald, I'm going to let you take this one first. Um, tell me about your your thoughts on David Cutcliffe's time in Durham. It was, I think, a lot longer than folks may have anticipated when when he was first hired in late 2007. Yeah, but he he earned it. And I mean, let's put it this way. Duke football will forever be changed and has forever been changed by him deciding back in 2007 to come to Duke. And, you know, it's been changed for the better. We've had we've improved facilities. We've have an improved stadium. And when you think about it, I think the lasting legacy that he has is not just in the culture that he's created here, but if you watch NFL games on Sundays and you watch Sunday night football, you watch Monday night football and you see guys introduce themselves, you see a couple of guys that say that they played at Duke. And I think that is something that we never heard before Cutcliffe arrived. Now we have several players who are not only in the NFL like you mentioned that you mentioned Lakin Tomlinson and you mentioned Matt, uh, Matt Jones being draft picks, first round draft picks. We haven't Matt had Jones or Daniel Jones. Matt, Daniel Jones. Matt I'm sorry, Jones Daniel Jones. Jones. Matt Jones. <laughs> Matt Jones should have been a first round draft pick. Um, but it, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, like those guys getting reps, being on te- national television, again, being able to announce their name and say that they played for Duke, they played for Coach Cutcliffe, the amount of guys that have come through that have played for Coach Cutcliffe has elevated this culture to the point where good recruits consider coming here and they consider playing at Duke. And I think that is incredible. So I think coach cut for that. I I think the last couple of years, obviously were very frustrating for everybody. And I'm sure he's the first one to admit that, but I think his lasting legacy is that he has built something that we can take to another level. And I think he, he had to, he had to build a foundation. He had to, he didn't have to rebuild it. He had to build it from scratch and have having served on the football team as a video assistant back when we didn't win any games for two years. And no, Sam, you also were a manager on the football team. This is what we like to see. And, and the fact that we have so many players who did not play for Coach Cutcliffe coming out afterwards to say how much he meant to this program, I think speaks a lot for, for everyone. What David Cutcliffe did that is so important is that he showed two things. One that Duke can be committed to playing winning football, that Duke's willing to have salaries and facilities and and all the other accoutrements that go with building a winning program. And more importantly, two, he showed that Duke can be successful at football because make no mistake, there were serious questions about the viability of the Duke football program when David Cutcliffe took this job. So we will be forever in his debt for taking a thankless job that most other folks probably did not want and, and really turning it into a program that we could be proud of, that, we, that fans and alumni would follow and that would have national respect and would produce guys who play on Sunday. And uh, yeah, the past couple of years have been poor and, and this season, especially in the ACC, was just dreadful. I mean, we didn't talk about football, because Duke was getting the brake speed off of them every single week. And it was time for a change. But we are 
also eternally thankful to David Cutcliffe for elevating the program to the point where I think Duke can now look at some really serious, really good, interesting candidates for this job. I'm not going to get into it now. I, I have no idea. I think it's all speculation. Everyone's guessing at different names and stuff like that. There, but there's some interesting candidates. There are people that are cons going to consider this job seriously who before David Cutcliffe would have laughed if Duke had called. So we are thankful to him for that. Yeah, I, as Donald said, and, and I know that I've talked about numerous times on the show, if you've been listening over the years, I got to work for the football program for three semesters. My last three semesters in college, I was an equipment manager. And I tweeted a little bit about this yesterday when the news came out. But I, I always, even when I worked there, this is not like, oh, I'm just reflecting on this now because, because he just left the program. But even when I worked there, I had this sense that, that Coach Cutcliffe was, was just sort of a, he, he, was, he was a different kind of guy. He was able to motivate people and encourage people and get the most out of people in ways that I don't think most football coaches have the ability to do. Most, most teachers don't have the ability to do, which is really what a coach is in a lot of cases. And, and you can see that in the results on the field. Duke averaged over five wins a game in the years that, that Coach Cutcliffe was, was in Durham, including the last few years, which were really tough, and including those first few years where he was still you know, mostly deploying Ted Roof's players and, and trying to, to pick up the pieces from what Donald was saying was just a, a broken program. So I, I don't think we can honestly state about how much Coach Cutcliffe was able to build in that first five, six years that he was at Duke and then sustain it for a little bit. Um, just because just because things have been bad the last couple of years does not mean that we should diminish those accomplishments that he had. I mean, the the, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, Duke was basically for a for a six seven year stretch there perennially a bull bound team, which is not something that anyone expected when they hired Coach Cutcliffe. Uh, the, the circumstances around his hiring were sort of interesting. Duke had been through a couple different candidates. They weren't really sure, you know, who they could get. A couple of guys had turned the job down and coach Cutcliffe at the time was, I think, looking for a slightly less stressful way for him to continue being a football coach. He had had some health problems, uh, which had prevented him from taking jobs in the past. And, and it sort of became this, this, uh, I don't know how much folks remember this. It was sort of a, a, a mutual fit that, Coach Cutcliffe had all this SEC experience. He was certainly a good enough football coach for Duke to be bringing in. He had been the head coach at Ole Miss. He had been an offensive coordinator at Tennessee for a long time. Like no one would would question that he was capable of that, but that he hadn't coached in the in the ACC. He hadn't coached at you know let's face it a, a school like Duke before. And I remember him being surprised that first year about how all the players were bringing their homework on the bus on on the way to road games. He was like, I'm not. Not really familiar with this dynamic, but um, but it's cool. So uh, so you know, power to them. Uh, and then and then when I was working there, there were just so many times when uh, I could see Coach Cutcliffe motivating people in ways that that I think are are uncommon. So uh, I'm I'm really proud to have worked for him for for the program. Not obviously directly, but uh, but but proud to have worked there, and and I'm proud of all that he accomplished. So uh, really. Uh, you know, from, from the bottom of my heart as, as, as a former employee here, uh, as well as a, as a fan of the program. Thank you, Coach Cutcliffe, for, um, for all that you did for Duke football. I think that the, the coaching search this time around is going to look entirely different than it did in 2007 for reasons that are mostly due to, um, to, to the job well done uh, that he did over the last 14 years in Durham. And, and 
before we get to that, or before we wrap, I guess, Donald, um, I think we have a little bit of speculation about where Duke might be going with this, with this selection. If you remember, we talked to Nina King and Kevin White uh, a bit about Coach Cutcliffe and, and, and looming retirements and things a few months ago. But just to update everybody, Nina King, who recently promoted new athletic director at Duke, ran the search last year to hire Carol Lawson as the women's basketball coach oversaw the transition or the transition that's going on now from Mike Krzyzewski to John Shire in the men's basketball side, and now has to replace a football coach. So she has been very busy building the stable of Duke coaches, uh, you know, key Duke coaches on campus. So Donald, what are we, what are we thinking here about the, the football coaching search that Duke is about to undergo? And we knew Nina was going to have to take some of these responsibilities. We knew there were some longtime coaches that were going to be, at or near their the conclusion of their tenure here at Duke, and the fact that she's had to step in and kind of do the, basically the essentially the top three uh, in the span of a year is incredible. We have no doubt that she's going to hire uh, somebody great. But I did want to you know just kind of for a minute here. We don't like to speculate a lot. But we're going to have some candidate names that have been thrown out there as potentials. Some of the ones that I thought were interesting. Uh, we'll start with Alabama offense coordinator Bill O'Brien, who, as everyone knows coached as offensive coordinator at Duke back in 2005-2006, was in the NFL, he's coached Penn State, he's coached just about everywhere. Uh, But that would be an interesting one just because of his ties to Duke and also because it's probably the biggest splash name out there that does have a tie to Duke. So uh, Bill O'Brien out there, uh, a lot of people have, have kind of hinted at Gary Patterson, the former TCU head coach, who obviously has had a lot of experience in a Power 5 conference at a private school. So uh, that connection is there. Um, Navy head coach Ken Numatolo, who has been at Navy forever um, since he was a he was a BYU, then he went to Navy, has been there just about forever. The one I think a lot of people are kind of excited about on the offensive coordinator standpoint is the Michigan offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis, uh, who obviously Michigan is having a terrific season. They are on the verge of the Big Ten championship, um, but that would be an interesting one. And then for me, I think a couple of local coaches uh, that people have been throwing out, East Carolina head coach Mike Houston, Coastal Carolina head coach Jamie Chadwell, and Charlotte head coach Will Healy. Of course, Duke fans know him very well as Charlotte beat Duke early uh, to start the season. So uh, those are some of the guys. Obviously, the list is long, um, longer than that. There's some offensive coordinators and head coaches that are there. uh, But I thought those were some of the ones that were most intriguing. So Gaddis is really interesting, and a lot of folks in the DBR forums are excited about him because he has a connection to Durham in North Carolina. He went, I believe he went to Wake Forest, um, and there are people who say he's the kind of person who, if he got the job and did well, might not immediately be looking to go someplace else with it um, because of his connection to the area. And, and I have to mention, <laughs> because I have a good friend, I'm not going to say his name because um, he hasn't authorized me to do that, but I have a good friend, he's posted on the DBR boards about this, who is somewhat connected to Greg Romans, the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens, who is someone who is really well regarded. And this friend of mine says that he knows that Greg Romans is interested in this job. So we shall see. We shall see. That that would be another hire that I think would get a lot of attention because he's obviously done really well in the NFL. And I think that, you know, going back to the conversation about Coach Cutcliffe, Duke, I think, understands a lot better what kind of program it is today than it did 14 years ago. I mean, they made the facility upgrades that, that sort of cemented Duke as, look, we're not competing for national championships in football. 
Um, there are not many programs that get to compete for national championships in football. Duke does not have the, the recipe for that. What Duke can offer is a, an experience for student athletes and for coaches that is fairly unique in the ACC in terms of you've got nice facilities, but you've got the academics, you've got the support of a university that does not, is not going to hang you in effigy just because you, you lost a, a bad non-conference game. Uh, and there is, there is a place for, for a lot of coaches there, whether this is a, a destination for them or whether this is just a stop along the way in their career. And honestly, what, what we've shown in the Cutcliffe era is, one, we can compete for Coastal Division championships. We, we won one in 2013. Every team in the Coastal has won a division in the last like nine years. So uh, that is possible. But also doing that while graduating almost everybody. I mean, we have been at, at or near the top of the APR in football for the better part of a decade. So we can win here. We can compete for championships. may not be national championships, but like you said, there's only a select few that are doing that. But we can compete for coastal championships. We can compete at that point for ACC titles. And then we're also doing that while graduating players. So I think this is a very unique situation. And again, Coach Cut paved the way for all of that. One more Coach Cut fact related to division titles that, that I, I meant to share earlier. If you don't think that what Coach Cutcliffe did in 2013 was amazing, Duke won an ACC Coastal Division title before Miami did. Miami, yeah. football. Duke achieved something before Miami football did in the same conference. So I like and the wow. same division. <laughs> I, I don't know how to. I, I don't know how to put the 2013 season into enough perspective, despite being a year when Duke lost its bowl game. Um, just about the proudest you could possibly hey, I, be. I went to that bowl game. That was a. That was like the greatest bowl. That was such. Yes, so I much was there fun. too. What a great bowl game. Oh. Were we? Were all three? All three of us were there. I right? didn't know yeah, that until this moment, too? but yes, yes. This is this is this is pre DBR podcast, but we were all in the building for the uh, for <laughs> that the was for the Georgia Johnny Manziel I, game. Uh, it was Manziel was amazing. I, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it, it was like I, I I think Jason, every Duke fan that I talked to, left that game with the same feeling. Like, yeah, it's a bummer we lost, but what a great season and what a great game to have. Yeah, been. exactly. Yeah, we got there. Yeah, no one. I, I don't think anyone anyone regrets that experience. So. Um, so hats off to coach Cutcliffe. Hopefully he gets to enjoy uh, some retirement. If he does want to keep coaching, hopefully he finds a gig, but he's 67 years old and, and has been a head coach for a long time. So uh, I assume he's got plenty of money and doesn't have to work anymore if he doesn't have to. Okay. We will, we will speculate more about football coaches. If we, if we hear any more uh, scuttle, but before we leave, I know Jason had one more thing that he wanted to share about oh my the Gonzaga gosh. game. So we are going to go back to basketball for one second. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is such a long podcast. I can't, there's no one still listening at this point. Everyone's turned it off. So I'll share that. Oh, they're still now. listening. They're still listening. <laughs> they're, they're, they're in pins and needles waiting for this moment, so, Jason. So there was a moment at the end of the Duke Gonzaga game. And I, I'd meant to mention this the other day when we were recapping the game and I forgot to, it was like buried underneath my notes and stuff, but I just wanted to, to recount like sort of a little personal story with 19 seconds left in the game. Duke was up by three points. Gonzaga called timeout. You guys may remember this moment. Um, both teams talked about their strategy and then Duke inbounded the ball and immediately got fouled and they, they fouled Wendell, uh, Wendell Moore. Um, and he, he went to the free throw line. He, he missed the first and he made the second. Um, nothing has materially changed in the game at that point. Duke was up three. Now they're up four. Yeah. But I mean, he's going to the line for two free throws. All this is to be expected. Coach K called timeout. It was Duke's last timeout. And I, I'll be honest. I started screaming at the TV. 
I was like, why is Kay losing his, using his last time out here? I was like, nothing has changed. We, you know, we know everything we knew earlier. Yeah, he made one out of two free throws. It just, it, it wasn't a big deal. I don't understand why he wasted his last time out. And I said to my brother-in-law who was watching the game with me, who's a fellow Duke fan, I was like, if Duke gets trapped and doesn't have a timeout or they can't inbound the ball and don't have a timeout or God forbid someone calls a timeout we don't have and we get called for a technical, I was like, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to drive to damn Vegas and I'm going to just, you know, destroy Coach K. I couldn't believe that he wasted his last time out there. I was like, this is just terrible coaching. I was so mad. And what happens? Gonzaga comes out of that timeout. Gonzaga inbounds the ball. Duke is in a completely different defense than we've been the whole game. We're in a three-quarter court trap designed to slow them down as the ball crosses half court. We're trapping and preventing them from, from you know, getting into their offense and getting off a good three-pointer. Um, Gonzaga ends up, there, there was about 15, 16 seconds left on the clock. Gonzaga ends up not taking a shot until like three seconds are left in the game. And Chet Holmgren ends up getting the rebound. They miss it. The Chet Holmgren gets the rebound and dunks it. It's meaningless. Game is over. And I turned to my brother-in-law and I was like, okay, there's a reason this guy, this Coach K guy is the greatest of all time. I'm an idiot. I thought he was making, he called the timeout to completely change what Duke was doing on defense. Go back and watch those final 20 seconds. It is coaching genius. He knew Mark Few had to have a three-pointer, you know, rather than taking a two. And so he called timeout to set up a defense that would make it impossible for Gonzaga to get a good three. Uh, Okay, I'm done with that now. That was that was exactly what I said to my dad in the stands when he came out in that set. I go, they're going to pass the ball around and they're not going to get a shot off. And sure enough, I just said, hey, they could pass all day. They could pass all day. The problem is they don't have all day. They have five seconds. And as soon as I said that, my dad goes, ball game's over. Like, I see how they're doing. Ball game's over. But again, a genius move by the GOAT. All right. Love it. We will be back after the Ohio State game on Tuesday. Tune in for all of the ACC Big Ten Challenge and just hope the ACC is able to perform better than the projections would tell you they will. So stay in touch with us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We got a lot more great emails this weekend. I'd love to read more of them on on the show, but we've already been here for like an hour. So uh, we have to cut it off. Stay in touch with us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Rate, review anywhere that you listen to podcasts. For Jason Evans, for Donald Wine, I'm Sam Klein. This has been episode 363 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>